This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. How do we ensure that decisions that shape our laws and public policy result in fair, transparent and protection-oriented outcomes? This was the focus of the second panel at the 2019 Caldor Centre Conference, Good Decisions, Achieving Fairness in Refugee Law, Policy and Practice. The session was chaired by Abdul Karim Hekmat, a freelance journalist who regularly writes on asylum seeker and refugee issues in Australia. As a refugee myself, I have been witness to the cruelty of the Australian policy for about 20 years, both personally but also bear the testimony of other refugees and asylum seekers. I'm originally from Afghanistan. I sought asylum in Australia in 2001 by boat. I was incarcerated for five months in Curtin Detention Center, which in the world of former immigration minister, Philip Braddock, had the most primitive facilities than any other detention center in Australia. But, leave, but releasing in the community, life was not easier. I was given a temporary protection visa with no right to family and not being able to study at university or at TAF. As we know that John Howard years was a dark time on refugee policy in Australia. However, in the past few years we have seen, in the past eight years, we have seen both under the Labour and the Liberal government that the policy has, has worsened. We have seen as a reporter myself, I have, I have reported the spread of suicide among asylum seekers. On average, about refugees spend about eight, eight years on limbo without being able to join their family or having a prospect to begin a life in Australia. And this has indeed a whole ramification for a lot of refugees in the community, that not only refugees who asylum seekers are traumatized by the whole community. People who, who the children of those people who come here are about a decade earlier or, or two decades earlier, and so many refugees in the community. The first speaker in this panel was Najiba Wazifadost, co-founder of the Asia-Pacific Network of Refugees and a member of the steering committee for the Global Refugee-Led Network. Her presentation was entitled, Nothing About Us Without Us, The Role of People with Lived Experience in Decision-Making. I can see a lot of familiar faces in the room. So for those of you who doesn't know me, my name is Najiba Wazifadost. And I was uh, almost 10 years old when I risked my life on a dangerous journey by boat and came to Australia with my family. Just like many other refugees who might be present in the room, and as I can see, there are people with lived experience sitting uh, within the audience, uh, which I'm assuming it, it will have been the most hardest decision for any one of us uh, to make in order to leave our country. So um, leaving our country is definitely um, a hard decision to be made by all of us. It means a break with all that knows, that all one knows about living. It means how, uh, um, it means a break with all that one knows about living, how to earn a livelihood, how to fit in a society, how to respond to landscape, how to taste, touch and smell. Over time, the real human faces have uh, uh, become or turned into statistics. You know, when we talk of people seeking asylum or when we talk of um, asylum seekers or refugees that are coming into Australia, we tend to hear more about the numbers and the statistics and not necessarily looking at those numbers uh, in a way that they're real human faces. We have forgotten the devastating circumstances from which refugees and asylum seekers are actually uh, coming from. Myself from Afghanistan, um, I have been living in a state of war for many decades, a country that have left little signs of justice, humanity and peace for all of us. Even now, there are villages in Afghanistan that are frequently attacked and minorities being the target of persecution. The war and its sufferings in Afghanistan basically have left us with no choice and actually acting as the frontliners to our situation. We were living in a situation where we couldn't wait for any international actors, including the humanitarian actors, to come in and to support us. Before any international actors come in, we were actually dealing with the situation in a way just to survive and to support our communities. And at times when the international actors walked in to provide support to the communities, it didn't take them a long time to actually leave, either due to the lack of political will or due to the changes within the government aid. 
and once again we were left on our own. This clearly indicates the importance of us refugees to be seen as the real actors rather than beneficiaries. We want to be held organized and contribute effectively. Ensuring that the people at the center of refugee and asylum policies have a strong voice in discussions concerning them is really not a new idea. We see a change in the language around participation, but not a change in practice. While at a local level, there may be more opportunities to consider the diversity of experiences, needs, and solutions, spaces for refugee self-representation shrink considerably at national and international decision-making levels. A number of us refugee-led um, organizations from all over the Asia regions, we actually came together and focused on refugee self-representation advocacy and what does participation mean to all of us. We were actually able to, to establish the first Asia regional refugee-led organization named APNOR, Asia Pacific Network of Refugees. Asia Pacific Network of Refugees is an initiative made by refugees for refugees, a network of refugee-led initiatives consisting of more than 20 refugee-led organizations from more than 20 countries that include Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Bangladesh, Japan, Hong Kong, Korea, Iran, Pakistan, and many other countries. APNOR, the Asia-Pacific Network of Refugees, has been engaging in the global refugee forum processes over the past two years. We've been observing, we've been feeding into the global compacts on refugees negotiation process. We've been participating in the GRF, Global Refugee Forum, preparatory sessions in Geneva. And uh, I think uh, one of uh, our biggest uh, milestone or achievement that we've had is being able to hold the first Asia Regional Summit of Refugees held in Bangkok last, in October 2018, which was recently, um, and, and uh, which, which we were recently again co-convened another forum called APNOR, APRAN Forum, Asia Pacific Refugee Rights Network, where we looked at the regional protection issues towards the Global Refugee Forum. In preparation to the Global Refugee Forum, which is going to take place in a few weeks in December, next, uh, in 2019 in Geneva, we were able to hold consultations with our communities right across the Asian region. How did we do this for those that could not travel, for those that ne doesn't, didn't necessarily speak the language, for those that didn't have legal residency status? What we did, we actually increased or promote spaces for participation through virtual digital participation. And we reached to more than 100 refugee-led communities by engaging them into the main venue hub in Bangkok and having conversations around challenges, barriers, as well as good practices that exist within the Asia region. We were able to collect the people within the Thai Burma border camps. We were able to create conversation with refugees in Cox's Bazar. We were able to speak to asylum seekers in Indonesia and Malaysia, as well as many other communities from Iran and Pakistan. Simultaneously, um, the Global Refugee-Led Network, which I'm also part of the steering committee, we were able to hold similar summits within the other regions in the globe. So, so far, we've had the European region, the European Summit of Refugees, held by my colleagues from the European region. We are having um, the Africa Summit of Refugees in the next few days, happening in Africa. We've also had the MENA Summit in Istanbul just a few days ago. So, um, we, we've, we've been holding um, six, different, six different regional summits so far globally, um, uh, something that not many actors could do, to be honest something that many actors would invest so much money to be able to bring those voices. We've been able to, put, to make or to put all of the key findings from all these summits into a transborder manifesto document, which looks at concrete actions and recommendations came from the grassroots into four years um, uh, strategy uh, plan for change. And I'm more than happy to show those documents for those uh, that wants to do more reading. So we can see that a sustainable refugee response requires meaningful refugee participation. There is more imperative to include refugees in decisions about their lives. This on its own should be enough. But beyond that, meaningful refugee participation is critical in the pursuit of saving lives and about creating meaningful refugee response. Successful movements are led by those most effective. 
That means we need refugees in positions in, uh, on positions of influence with non-refugees and strong allies. We are often hearing that the international humanitarian system is more effective ever at meeting the needs of people caught up in humanitarian crisis. What are the benchmarks for this increased effectiveness? Don't discard them. It is true that efforts have been made, but these are in terms of accountability towards the donors. Do we feel confident that they have successfully increased their accountability towards affected population? The GRF, the Global Refugee Forum process to date, has demonstrated a shift towards the participation revolution. Refugee participation in policy discussions can make policies better. Despite great strides in the inclusion of affected communities in refugee policy discussions, and clear evidence that local actors and organizations are driving response in many areas, the formal humanitarian system unfortunately has failed to connect meaningfully with national and local institutions and groups. As currently structured, the incentives for such engagement do not exist. The sector's power dynamics, culture, financing, and incentive structures create compelling reasons to remain closed and centralized and averse to innovation, learning, and transformation. At all the summits called globally, we realize that there are new opportunities and trends that could be harnessed to better enable refugee participation and agency in decision-making. And I'll, and I'll try to go through them one by one. The first one, the vital role refugee voices should play in decision-making was highlighted in 2016 New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants. The New York Declaration explicitly includes refugees in various procedures and structures as a primary consideration in the development of the comp uh, Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, CRRF, a multi-stakeholder approach should be adopted with participation of refugees themselves. The second opportunity that we realized was the Global Compact on Refugees, offering avenues for refugee participation into the Global Refugee Forum that's happening next month on 19th of December, and then in 2021, and every four years after that. And thirdly, there has been increasing talk of participatory practices in policies and programming from UNHCR, uh, from UNHCR's community-based protection policies to organizations providing evidence that have the potential to give refugees a voice and hold NGOs to great account. The other opportunity that we've also realized within the summits is the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016. Since the World Humanitarian Summit in 2016, there is more talk and some commitment have been made about localization. This is, among other things, about shifting funding from larger international NGOs to local actors. There is potential for refugee-load organizations to benefit from a greater access to resources through lo localization agenda. And uh, lastly, as the refugee response system have increasingly failed to find solutions for refugees, there has been growth and development for refugee-led organizations and initiatives. Refugees, both women and men, youth, have taken matters in their own hands, exercising agency. Refugees around the world organized to start small businesses, social enterprises, volunteer network, radio stations, and many other initiatives to empower and help their communities. Despite the call for all this increased involvement of refugees, there is very little evidence that refugee communities are being better represented in all of these processes. There are no formal spaces, to be honest. UNHCR, together with the humanitarian assistance operators, perform a participatory appraisal on an annual basis, but there's no follow-up. There are no shared results with the refugees, and there's no proactive capacity which is being recognized. In terms of effective refugee representation and participation, there is need for both gender parity in the representation and diversity. It is very, very important that when key players in the refugee space use the term diversity, sexual orientation, and gender identity are included. Ensuring diverse and representative refugee voices in global discussions is challenging when much of the dialogue actually takes place 
in, in, in places like Geneva or New York, where access is limited, who are all, and who, where access is limited to those who are already in Europe or North America, or for those who have documents or legal residency to travel. But for most of us, where the daily existence is still a struggle, we will be having less opportunity to participate. UNHCR has framed active refugee participation a prerequisite for all its programs and operations, yet refugee participation has been limited to consultations mostly at the local level and to a subcontracting relationship. There is no political interest or political commitment on the part of national authorities or international governments. Despite the international community's recognition of participatory policymaking as detailed in the grand bargain and the sustainable development goals mantra to leave no one behind, existing participatory practices fall short. There is no international refugee body or systematized way of refugees to engage at the United Nations. All actors involved in the international protection must consider and actively work towards the meaningful inclusion and enablement of refugee-led organizations and initiatives as equal partners in the pursuit of solution to force displacement. When I actually talk of equal partners, then that means they should be entitled with the same right to equal access. This includes consideration about allocation of resources, ways to support leadership and capacity building requests made by refugee-led organizations and networks, and analyzing and addressing barriers to participation. The humanitarian architecture, including working groups and clusters, should engage refugee-led organizations within their structures and mechanisms. Their voices, concerns, and ideas need to be part of the planning and coordination process. We really need to start identifying and engaging and supporting and building the capacity of refugee-led organizations in refugee responses. And that goes from registration exercise to direct service delivery. International and local NGOs should partner. We really need to start um, looking at our partnership approach so far. How do we actually partner with refugee-led organizations? Do we just want to use them as, as the recipient of aid? or do we actually want to share the power and agency? Let's, be, let, let's start having conversation around power sharing. I really think supporting refugee-led best practices is one of the solutions. The refugee community has shown great capacity in solving issues around migration and integration. Refugees are often first responders, as I said before in my own example in my country. They are also the integration guides for newcomers and governments program implementers and educators. Both refugee-led solutions are not growing and, and expanding and replicating fast enough due to lack of resources, information, and funding. In response to this, APRO, the Asia-Pacific Network of Refugees, in working relationship with GRN, the Global Refugee-Led Network, we are hoping to launch an accelerator for refugee-led initiatives tackling immigration and integration. The goal of this initiative is to find and connect proven and impactful refugee-led best practices with key stakeholders in order to replicate and accelerate this growth. Bringing these initiatives to scale will increase refugee self-reliance, contribute to durable solutions, and improve integration. And to do this, obviously, we will need your support. And once again, I would like to invite you to have a chat with me after the event, if possible. To conclude, I would like to say that we need to, um, there needs to be more substantive consideration of how sustainable enabling environments for the meaningful participation of refugees, migrants, and host communities can be co-created under an effective, non-tokenistic whole of society approach. As the founder of APNOR, along with GRN, I will be in Geneva in less than two to three weeks. We will be actually making a formal uh, announcement of our pledge, uh, which is on meaningful refugee participation. Um, this pledge has already been supported by the governments of Netherlands, Ethiopia, and Canada. So we will be having um, a much more further conversation while in Geneva at the Global Refugee Forum. But I would also like to use this opportunity to invite the actors in the room to come and endorse our pledge and to show your commitment in how you can support the work of refugee-led organizations. At the same time, we will be actually launching the first meaningful refugee guideline manual 
uh, in Geneva, which has been supported and co-authored by SSI, Settlement Services International, Oxfam Asylum Access and Independent Diplomat. And again, for those of you who are interested to have access to this guideline manual, please get in touch with me as I would love to have further conversation after the panel. The next speaker was Professor Yolanda Yetin, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Queensland. Her research examines group processes, social identity, and intergroup relations. Her presentation was entitled The Wealth Paradox, Economic Prosperity, Populism and Opposition to Refugees and Asylum Seekers. My talk is actually quite different from what you've heard so far. I'm a social psychologist and uh, what I've studied over the last couple of years is mostly attitudes of the general public towards refugees and immigrants more generally. Um, and in particular, whether those attitudes are positive and negative, and also what are the factors that determine uh, uh, the content of those uh, uh, attitudes. Um, and I think it is important to perhaps engage with that, because it is very often that policymakers and also political leaders, they look, or at least they say, look, this is what the public wants us to do. They want us to restrict immigration. Uh, they want us to close the borders and reduce the quota. So it is very important to sort of look at uh, what the public wants. And I think that's all the more relevant, given uh, lots of international developments where populism is on the rise, and we've seen an uh, election of populist leaders uh, worldwide. And all of those leaders, what they have in common is that they have very strong uh, negative attitudes towards refugees and immigrants. Um, so, and I will be touching on some of the work that uh, Frank Moles and myself, Frank Moles is a political scientist, have brought together in a book uh, called The Wealth Paradox. So just to start off, uh, I want to talk a little bit about what are the attitudes of the Australian public. And this is a survey that caught quite a bit of attention in the media. Um, so uh, it was asked to what extent, uh, what do you think of the number of immigrants accepted into Australia at present, would you say that it is too high, about right, too low? And what was really sort of catching attention in 2018 was that actually 43% said of Australians said it was too high, right? Uh, if you look at still uh, about right, too low, that's just over 50%, but this is of course a high number. And that uh, was a poll, a very similar poll was uh, done by The Guardian where they found that more than 50% of uh, their sample agreed with this statement that immigration is too high. And of course, uh, many uh, politicians on the right, they immediately used that and pushed for policies to reduce uh, uh, the uh, quotas for immigrants. I think there are a couple of problems uh, with these sort of uh, polls, uh, particularly with this question, and that has been pointed out by a number of people. First of all, it assumes that the person answering that question knows what the intake is, what the actual number is, but also that they're in a position to make a fairly sort of informed judgment about whether the intake is at sustainable levels or not. And I doubt that many of the participants had that. So there's a problem with that, um, but what I also think is a bit problematic is that there are many other sort of things that you could focus on. So if you look at many other polls that suggest a much more sort of positive, but also much more nuanced picture. If you look at the question, accepting immigrants from many countries makes Australia stronger, you see a majority of people actually strongly agree or agree with that statement. If you simply not ask people sort of about immigration, but simply ask them to spontaneously think about what the issues that they think are of concern in Australia today, over the years you see a very low percentage of people that sp spontaneously mention that immigration is a problem. It's has grown over the years, that's a reason for concern, but still at 2018 it was only 7%. All sorts of other statements where I actually think that um, attitudes are not as negative as these polls lead us to believe. So for instance, do questions like immigrants improve Australian society by bringing new ideas and cultures? Majority of people from two polls agree. Uh, immigrants are generally good for Australia's economy. Again, uh, a lot of agreements. Immigrants take jobs away. A lot of disagreement, or strongly disagreement or immigrants increase crime rates, you also see their strong disagreement, disagreement, that's the majority of participants. 
or to questions more generally of whether multiculturalism is good for Australia. You see that more than 80% of participants strongly agree or agree. Um, then attitudes towards Muslims, a reason for concern, especially in the last couple of years. Yes, there is reason of concern here, though. There's, there's, even though you can see it's not really changed all that much, uh, there's, uh, there's quite uh, a few people who have very negative or somewhat negative attitudes. Um, and that is often also reflected in the rising numbers of people who actually say that they have experienced discrimination in the last year. Uh, and this is not only uh, not even looking at people uh, of particular groups who are targeted, such as uh, Muslims. And we all know that this is often uh, uh, something, a very political issue. Um, this is uh, a clear from uh, uh, One Nation voters uh, these bars, the high bars, are more likely to say that immigrant numbers should be reduced, immigrant inc immigrants increase crime, and immigrants take jobs, uh, compared to people from other, who vote for other parties. But also, there's an interesting sort of city-non-city -city divide. People in uh, more rural areas are more likely to say that immigrants' numbers should be reduced, immigrants increase crime, and immigrants take jobs. So. Just knowing those statistics and looking at them, one of the questions that we've sort of looked at over the last couple of years is, let's look at then, uh, when do we find these negative attitudes? Where do we find them? Uh, who's most likely to vote for parties like One Nation? And why do they do that? And the story is generally a consistent one, where theorizing is often focusing. If you simply look at economic factors, I, I should uh, clarify, that it is those people who are most affected by economic downturn, uh, or if there's a crisis uh, about to hit, people get very concerned about the future, and also in areas where uh, economically will, uh, we, you find that downturn. Um, and it is understood if people are actually experiencing relative deprivation, if they feel that the future looks bleak, things uh, are not as great as it, they were in the past, people get frustrated and take out their frustration towards various minority groups. Uh, that is a realistic conflict over the resources that they uh, see are available. But if you look at uh, sort of in, in our uh, research, especially in Europe, where we've seen quite a bit of a rise of extreme right-wing parties, and we looked very much at the performance of the economy in terms of GDP over a period of time in, say, Sweden, France, Netherlands, and Switzerland. And we looked at here the electoral success of uh, populist parties. You know, you can look at that for a long time, but I hope you trust me when I say there's actually no relationship, right? Uh, and what's more, particularly in countries like uh, Netherlands, the rise of these, the electoral success of these parties can be found in times when the economy is booming. So psychologically, that's hard to understand. We can also look at Australia's situation that most of you are very familiar with, of course. Uh, Australia here, you have uh, Pauline Hansen's uh, comes on the scene. She, in Queensland, gets nearly one in four of the votes. Federal level, it's a bit lower. Um, and again, what you see here is a bit interesting, but also counterintuitive, because this actually, her electoral success, comes after five years of consecutive growth of the GDP. Um, you could, of course, say, look, uh, it's, it's also clear that when the economy really starts booming, that her uh, sort of success goes down. But I guess many people and many sort of political scientists have argued that what simply happened is that the government took her agenda and has run with it ever since. Uh, so, but you could also look at unemployment levels, and interesting here that if unemployment is very high, then we do find a good correlation with the number of people who say that immigration is too high. But if it actually comes under a particular level, under 6% or hovers around that, then you see that that correlation is no longer there. So the Grattan Institute is saying the increase in negative sentiments over the last two years does not appear to be linked to economic concerns. Another thing I think is interesting to share here, the Grattan report is saying the vote share of minor parties has been rising since 2007. The minor party vote is mostly a protest vote, and we know that. But economics alone is less important. The largest increase in support for minor parties in Australia, and that's, by the way, excluding the Greens, 
uh, came during a period of strong wage growth and uh, stable um, inequality. Okay, so there seems to be a little bit more going on here than simply saying in times of economic downturn, we get the rise of extreme right-wing parties. Of course, there's also a question where this happens. Where do populist parties have most of success? This is from the Trump elections um, in 2016. It's interesting that all the camera crews went to the Rust Belt and actually found quite a lot of people who were voting for Trump. But what they overlooked was the support for Trump in, say, Florida, one of the massive swing states, all the other places where the Trump uh, got massive support. So it became a one-sided picture. If you look at Australia, it is clear, though, that uh, the further you actually go away from uh, the cities, the more support you find for the minor parties. And again, that is excluding the Greens. Or also, if we look at Pauline Hanson's support, here there is uh, a much stronger the further away you go from uh, the cities. But again, it's, uh, it's, it's not as simple as, you know, these are the regions that are left behind economically, because other sort of data also show us that uh, wealth has just grown just as much in uh, regional centers uh, compared to the cities uh, over a period of 10 years' time. So it's not economically feeling uh, sort of left behind, but it is, as I will argue, psychologically feeling left behind, right? Okay, and just as a bit of an example, as a case study, uh, this is a header uh, after the elections uh, beginning of the year that in the Hunter Valley regional area, which is seen to be very wealthy, uh, One Nation actually made quite, had quite a big win there. So again, how do you explain that? This is an area of traditional, of high wealth, uh, uh, and economic factors cannot explain this. So finally, who is then most likely to vote for um, um, uh, uh, these sort of parties? Well, it is often assumed to be the, the blue-collar worker, low SES people. But also there, there are many instances that sort of counter that. If we look at Brexit, the vote between those, uh, those who actually voted Remain versus Leave, uh, often the biggest decider on what they voted was immigration, their stance on immigration. But also here, there are good data now suggesting that it is the middle class who drove that vote, uh, not the working class. Similarly for Trump, uh, immediately after Trump's win, there was quite a bit on who carried that victory for Trump, uh, fingers pointing at the Rust Belt and the, the low SES people. But later, analyzing the exit polls, it became very clear that that vote was carried by wealthier people. So there's an interesting sort of, uh, uh, that it's the average sort of Trump voter is, uh, is uh, um, more than average, uh, has an income higher uh, than average. Yeah? So, okay, so just to sort of then, uh, how can we explain that, right? It's clear that there are no clear relationships here between wealth and economic prosperity uh, and uh, support for populist parties and populist ideas. And I actually really like the analysis that the Grattan Institute uh, has here, where they're actually saying, look, maybe what we actually need to look at is concerns about losing control and wanting to take back control in a world where the direction and pace of change aren't to people's liking. Yeah, so that the idea is that things aren't what they used to be and minor party voters identify with the norms, values and ways of life of traditional Australia. These sentiments are more prevalent in regional Australia. And of course, it's the minor parties that are most effectively tapping into these uh, sentiments. Uh, and it's not just here in Australia that, that analysis might hold. It's very clear if we look at the Brexit slogan, it's about taking back control, bringing us back to where we're coming from, something that appeals to those, the majority group, and especially also older voters. Or the Trump slogan, make America great again. It is about being, being again the sort of wealthy and prosperous country that you feel is under threat. This is also clear from uh, um, all sorts of other data that uh, from the Grattan Institute. Uh, if we look at One Nation voters, they're particularly pessimistic about the future, um, and so that they are, you know, no longer believing that uh, there is an opportunity for them to to grow here in Australia. 
Um, just a final sort of uh, a slide here. Um, one Nation uh, voters are uh, particularly passionate about maintaining Australia's culture and way of life. So this is One Nation. You can see people strongly agree with the statement that uh, maintaining an Australian way of life and culture is important compared to all the other parties. And also here in regional Australia compared to the cities, you can see two questions like everything is changing too often and too fast. Regional Australians are more likely to agree and are also more likely to agree with items that there's too little emphasis on traditional values. And this is something that you find uh, across the board worldwide, right? So this book by Guest is also focusing on the idea that white people feel that they're actually no longer at the center of attention, of policymakers' attention. So it is feeling demoted, feeling marginalized, and feeling powerful to do something about that. So just as a final slide, yep. Um, so what, what can policymakers do about that? Um, I think I would say that maybe the first thing is to just be mindful of the fact that the support for populist parties is perhaps not at that part of uh, uh, the region or that among that segment of society or in times uh, that you actually might expect it uh, the most, right? It may actually be there when it's actually going really well economically among voters who are relatively wealthy and also in the cities where there are particular concerns. Um, but what it does require is perhaps much more of an idea of thinking of ways to manage those concerns more effectively. Um, and I think in particular the last one that I have up there is um, addressing concerns about loss of power and voice among a segment of society. That seems to be essential. And I, our data at least suggests that that also, once that is addressed, that people can be much more generous and open-minded about giving access to refugees. Thank you, I'll leave it there. The final speaker in this panel was Dr. Sangeetha Pillai, Senior Research Associate at the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law, where she directs the centre's research project on the legal dimensions of Australia's refugee policy. My presentation's called um, How Law and Policy Create Barriers to Inclusion for Refugees and People Seeking Asylum. And what I'd like to talk about is um, two concurrent trends in the development of law and policy in, um, that governs membership of the Australian community. Um, and in a nutshell, what I'm going to try to do in this presentation is shed light on um, an emerging trend towards making it more difficult to gain full membership of the Australian community while simultaneously making it easier to lose full membership of the community once you already, once you already have it. Um, so essentially what this, what this means is that inclusion within the Australian community is becoming less certain and, um, and also less secure. Um, so historically, um, people who came to Australia had the capacity to progressively move closer towards full membership. So you might enter Australia as a temporary, um, as a temporary entrant. Um, you would then have the option, if you wish to avail of it, of becoming a permanent resident, and from there the option, should you wish to avail of it, of becoming a citizen. Whereas now, what you and so that's kind of illustrated on the on the diagram up there. What you start to see now with this um, this kind of trend that's been emerging is something more like this. So it's um, still possible for people who come to Australia to move through um, all of the tiers of membership from temporary residency to permanent residency to citizenship, um, theoretically, but there's less equality in that. So people get stuck at different, um, at, at different points more often. So for some people, um, becoming full, a full member of the Australian community is much easier for some people than for others. For some people, um, acquiring permanent residency or citizenship, it, it is as far as to say that it's become practically impossible. And um, for some people, even once they hold the fullest form of, of community membership in the form of Australian citizenship, um, that, that, can be, that can be lost. So it's becoming harder to become a full member and easier to, to lose that status once, um, once you hold it. And the burden of these policy shifts has fallen disproportionately on, um, on people from refugee backgrounds. And my presentation will look at some of the reasons for, for why this is the case. Um, before I get into the reasons for why this is the case, I, I wanted to 
say that it's particularly disturbing that the burden um, of, um, of these shifts has fallen. It, it has had the effect of making it particularly um, difficult for people from ref for refugee backgrounds to progress to full membership of the Australian community and, and hold that status because of how important inclusion in, um, in a new community is for people of refugee backgrounds. And I have a quote that I want to read out from the refugee from a community consultation that the Refugee Council undertook um, from a person from a refugee background emphasising the importance of, um, of Australian citizenship to, to people from refugee backgrounds. So the participant said, having a citizenship is highly valued. It gives you equal rights and equal protection for the first time. Refugees are honoured to have an Australian citizenship and we appreciate the rights, protections and obligations that comes with it. If we didn't have Australian citizenship, we would have nowhere to go. So the, like, the access has been inhibited the most for the people that, that inclusion is um, in many ways most important to. Um, and, and the importance of that is recognised at the international law level. So the Refugee Convention um, makes it incumbent upon states um, who, who are signatory to the convention to, as far as possible, facilitate the assimilation and naturalisation of refugees and to make every effort to expedite naturalisation proceedings and to reduce, as far as possible, the charges and costs of such proceedings. And what we have seen emerge in Australia is, is kind of, over time, the opposite trend. The two most important statutes that, um, that govern um, access to the um, to government membership of the Australian community are the Migration Act 1958 and the Australian Citizenship Act 2007. And there's two key points to take from these statutes for, for the purposes of my presentation. Um, the first is that I've got language from both, act, um, from both of these acts extracted up there on the slide. And um, the language indicates that these statutes point in opposite directions. So the language of the Migration Act, which is in the orange box on the, on the left up there, focuses around exclusion and conditional entry, whereas the language in the Citizenship Act in the, in the blue box on the right focuses around inclusion and unity. So that's the first point to take from, um, from these two acts. The second point to take is that the division in, in these two acts is drawn between non-citizens and citizens. So the Migration Act deals with people who are not citizens and, um, and the circumstances in which they can be excluded from Australia um, or granted conditional entry, and the Citizenship Act deals with um, citizenship as a concept uh, and kind of marks that as full inclusion within, um, within the Australian community. And the, this division between non-citizens and citizens doesn't speak directly to, to refugees or their unique needs. And it means that um, the, the unique needs of refugees can get lost in this dichotomy that Australian law creates between citizenship and non-citizenship without looking at the, at the circumstances um, of refugees that are much more spoken to in international law. So the Citizenship Act and the Migration Act deal with the inclusion and exclusion of people within the Australian, um, within the Australian community. The rights of citizens and migrants more generally are governed by over 100 pieces of legislation. And if you look at all of this, what you see is traditionally three tiers of membership within, um, within the Australian community. Temporary resident status, permanent resident status, and citizenship. Um, and so, like, in terms of rights, the main division is between um, temporary residents that don't have that many rights and permanent residents and citizens who share many of the same many of the same rights as each other, many of the same pri the privileges that citizens have, permanent residents also have. The biggest differences in the rights of citizens and permanent resident non-citizens, um, well, non-citizens including permanent residents, are um, political rights, which only citizens hold, and um, freedom from exclusion. So re people who are non-citizens, no matter how long they've lived in Australia, um, have the capacity to have their visa cancelled and, uh, and be removed from Australia, and that's something that citizens are, um, uh, are free from. And citizenship, historically, for a very long time, was a very secure status. So once you had it, it was extremely difficult to lose it. If you'd legitimately gained citizenship, it was basically impossible to, to lose it. The only ground for losing citizenship for, for a very long time was fraud. Um, so, as I said before, importantly, historically speaking, it was really possible 
for any temporary entrant to become a per permanent resident and for any permanent resident to become a citizen. The policy was designed to um, treat permanent residents as, as permanent members of the Australian community and to maximise the conversion rate of permanent residents to citizens. Um, and we've started to see shifts in, in that. So um, the sh there have been moves in recent law and policy to make full membership of the Australian community, and I'm talking there about both citizenship as well as the interim status of permanent residency, more difficult to obtain and more easy to lose. And the burden of these shifts has fallen disproportionately on refugees and people seeking asylum. And so I wanna um, highlight a few examples um, on, on each of these fronts. So looking first at, the, at some examples that have made full membership more difficult to obtain, um, and, and, and just as a note, most of these examples don't single out, with, with one important exception, these examples don't single out refugees, they just operate in a way that has a disproportionate effect on, on refugees. But the first example I want to speak to does um, single out, out refugees, actually, in, in terms of making full membership more difficult to obtain. Um, and that's the treatment of, um, of refugees that arrive by boat and form part of the fast track or legacy caseload um, cohort. So this picks up nicely from the discussion in the last, um, in the last panel. Um, Ed Santo and Marianne Kenny and Nicholas Proctor talked in great detail about the, the difficulties in the process of applying for, um, for a protection visa for people in this legacy caseload um, cohort. I want to pick up where that leaves off and actually talk about the kind of protection that you get. So this was touched on in the last panel as well, but um, people in, um, in the legacy caseload cohort are um, only eligible for a temporary kind of visa. So these are TPVs and CHEVs. These are visas that you get for three to five years and um, your only option if you're on a TP TPV is to apply for another temporary visa and you have to, as was said in the last panel, re-establish your, um, your claim for, for protection. Um, if you're on a CHEV, theoretically, you have the capacity to, to meet um, the, the criteria for um, a, a permanent um, visa, but the threshold by the government's own admission is set very high and um, analysis by, by people who work in the field overwhelmingly suggests that it's effectively, like it's very likely impossible for, for this standard to be met. So people in this legacy caseload cohort um, are trapped in a situation where they're basically locked into a state of, of temporariness, having to um, live on the margins of the Australian community, having to, um, like, you know, re-establish their claim for protection with, like, effectively no practical capacity to move through to permanent residency and then to citizenship. The second trend that I, example that I want to speak to is delays in citizenship processing. So this applies to permanent residents that are seeking to become citizens. And recently we've seen significant delays in the processing of citizenship applications. Uh, part of this is because of uh, a larger number of, um, of, of citizenship applications, but there's also a policy reason for it. So like there's been delays kind of for everybody as of, as of March 2019, there were in excess of 228,000 unprocessed citizenship applications waiting to be processed. Um, but it's, and people generally are waiting up to 330 days to have applications processed. But for people from refugee backgrounds, this period is double. So it's in excess of 600 days. And um, part of the reason for this is that the Department of Home Affairs has identified a high risk cohort, supposedly high risk cohort of citizenship applications that it calls the assurance caseload. And applicants in this caseload are subject to additional character and identity checks prior to citizenship conferral. So this means effectively undergoing extensive questioning about small aspects of their asylum applications um, and their permanent residency applications with as a precursor to having their citizenship application considered. So not only does this manifestly increase the wait time to obtain citizenship, it also puts people in this risk or in, at the risk 
of losing their permanent residency. Because if there are discrepancies found between the information in your asylum application and the, that information when it's revisited, you stand to lose your permanent residency on the, on the basis of, of fraud. And again, picking up on where the last panel left off, we, um, we, we see how lengthy those applications are and how easy it is to have small discrepancies without actually like telling, telling an untruth. So it, it, it's really a barrier to inclusion um, for, for people from refugee backgrounds. Um, the third example here, I'll gloss over very briefly because it's something that hasn't actually happened. Um, but there was a push towards manifestly increasing the length of time that, um, that people need to hold permanent residency before um, obtaining citizenship and manifestly raising the English standard um, when testing for citizenship, both of which would have had a disproportionate impact on, on refugees because of the fact that for many refugees it takes longer to acquire permanent residency and because for many refugees, lack of access to formal education makes the, the raising of the English standard more oppressive. This hasn't been enacted, but there were two bills put before the last parliament, so there's clearly like a push towards introducing legislation of this nature, and it's a bit of a watch this space. Um, less importantly, and I'll gloss over this, um, this one quickly, but citizenship as a status has also fallen from the very secure status that it, that it previously um, that it previously was. So up until 2015, once you had Australian citizenship, you basically couldn't lose it. In 2015, citizenship stripping law was introduced, um, and it's still relatively difficult to lose citizenship. You can, you can have it stripped on national security grounds, um, and it only applies to dual citizens, but it basically creates, um, a, like, you know, it, it makes citizenship more secure for people with sole Australian citizenship than for dual citizens. And this has a disproportionate impact on, on refugees because many refugees do have a foreign citizenship but um, face, face a real risk of persecution in their country of citizenship, which means that the consequence of citizenship loss for them becomes um, indefinite detention. So if we go back to the three tiers that, we, that, I, that I talked about before, um, temporary residency, permanent residency, and citizenship, the effect of these two trends has been basically to bifurcate each of these tiers. So now you have temporary residents who um, have the prospect of becoming permanent residents and temporary residents who don't, permanent residents that have a, a realistic um, and, and speedy pathway to citizenship and permanent residents that, that get stuck in that tier for a long time, subject to ongoing, um, ongoing scrutiny and with the, the need to kind of um, provide lots more information in order to gain citizenship, and citizens that have secure citizenship, that's sole citizens and dual citizenships that have a, citizens that have a less secure citizenship. And the, at each of these, the, the people that get stuck um, are disproportionately people from refugee backgrounds.